Uh, what's up everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans. Today we're going to be talking about all things Scottish, Scottish politics as we head towards the Scottish election because it's not just the Welsh elections coming up. Delighted to be joined by friend of the show, Connor Beaton. Connor is in Radical Independence Campaign in Dundee and is also part of the Republican Socialist platform and he wears a lot of other hats as well. But experienced campaigner and uh, all-round good guy. So welcome, Connor. No, thanks so much for joining. So we will get round to talking about the Scottish election, but there are some interesting developments in Scottish politics over the last year or so that I want to sort of pick your brains about. So the main thing is the formation of Alba, Alex Salmon's possibly vanity project, uh, which he launched with the aim of getting an independent supermajority. So the tactic is to get everyone to vote for Alba on the list, uh, which I thought was quite a, a canny strategy. But tell us about you know, the, the background, the fourth... Alex Sam was probably one of the most effective politicians you know the UK's seen. Probably put him up with like Farage um, and Blair in terms of like how effective and, and Boris in, in terms of how effective he's been. But obviously like a, a fairly massive fall from grace. Do you mind just talking us about the background of what you know what happened with Sam and the, the split with Sturgeon, the court case and and, and all that? Sure. Um, I suppose where I should probably start is um, explaining kind of the crisis in the SNP over the past few years. So ever since the referendum, as most as everyone will probably know, the SNP ended up in a really, really strong position immediately after the independence referendum. And it caught everyone, including the SNP, really off guard. All of a sudden, they had like 100,000 members, you know, proportionately they had the biggest political party anywhere on these islands. And that obviously came with a lot of pressure on uh, Nicola Sturgeon as the new leader coming in, and a whole lot of people who were politicised through the independence referendum who felt, and you know, on the 18th of September, we were so close and it's only going to take one one more push, and we're basically there. Um, and that didn't really happen. You know, over the years that followed, um, the SNP hasn't really succeeded in managing to move the issue of independence forward. So 2016 election, the SNP ran a manifesto that said, we will have another referendum if there is a material change in circumstances, um, such as, for example, Britain leaving the European Union. And then, of course, Britain did leave the European Union. That hasn't changed anything because the UK government's position is still, we're not going to grant a Section 30 order, you've had your say, that's it, democracy has been been done. (laughs) And that's obviously caused a lot of problems in the SNP because there's a lot of pressure from the grassroots to actually deliver this. And the leadership's position has been ultra-cautious. And and, and the other factor, of course, is exacerbating all this is that the SNP is not a particularly democratic party, so they don't really have these forums in which members can strategize and decide policy and everything. So there's always been that uh, that tension of the fact that nobody is really involved in the decision-making. So there was already things bubbling in the SNP, and then you've got this whole crisis with Salmon. So this kind of starts a few years ago. I would say, actually, before before even the sexual harassment allegations came up, Salmon was already becoming kind of an awkward figure for the SNP leadership, because even though he stepped down as leader, and from the Scottish Parliament, he still maintained this kind of high profile. He was still making what I assume he thought were helpful contributions, but he was sometimes not really being on message online. But then this all comes to a head when uh, sexual harassment allegations are made against him. And, you know, he, he winds up leaving the SNP. He winds up denying that any of this stuff happened. He winds up taking the Scottish government that he used to lead to court. He wasn't happy with the way that the allegations against him were investigated. He didn't even think that the Scottish government policy on sexual harassment should apply to former ministers. He thought it should only ever apply to people who were currently ministers. And he he, he launched a judicial review um, in the Scottish courts, and he won it. He won it because the, the investigation wasn't carried out to the standard that it was meant to, basically. 
So that's kind of the, that's the point at which he has made a decisive break from the SNP leadership because that is basically open warfare. There's no kind of coming back from that. But then after that, you have the criminal trial and basically several women who are a mix of senior uh, Scottish politicians, civil servants, made allegations uh, against him. He was acquitted of all of them, but he didn't really leave the trial in glory because his, his legal strategy was based very much... Uh, there's, there's a recording you can hear of his... Um, his lawyer, who was actually chatting a bit more than he should on a train, and he was filmed kind of saying, you know, his strategy was to try and put a smell on the women and try and make them seem unreliable. And um, he admitted basically, like, okay, my conduct's not been great, it's just not been criminal. You know, the phrase sleepy cuddles has entered the Scottish political lexicon because that's how he characterised his uh, relationship with one of the women. And, and, and throughout this whole period, you have people who are trying to read something conspiratorial into this, or yeah. like, you know, maybe. He's been stitched up by either the British state or maybe by the SNP leadership or maybe by both. And it's become this whole kind of circus. And there's like political divisions, there's personal divisions. The whole thing is an incredible mess. And there's a lot of people, you know, uh, in, in the SNP leadership and in, in the independence movement who kind of hoped, look, this is, you know, really, really awkward. Maybe Salmon will just retire and <laughs> uh, quietly. And, you know, this, this can just... You know, he can have his position, others can have theirs, but this doesn't really dominate the movement. And then what a lot of people were dreading would happen actually happened is that he launched his own political party um, earlier this year. And, and, you know, it's really funny because so it's there's been chatter for, for a long time about, like, maybe there should be another political party for independence. It's actually really, it's really funny that back in 2016, there was a real hostility in the independence movement to the idea of having any political party other than the SNP. It used to be that, you know, the left, uh, Scottish Greens or Rise, and I was actually a candidate for Rise um, in North East Scotland, uh, you know, were saying to people, you know, you could vote for us on the regional list because we have this kind of yeah. two-vote system. Um, it's not a wasted vote. You know, we have a proportional representation. You can totally do that. Um, and then you have this extreme hostility from SNP supporters who are saying, no, 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 we all have to get behind the SNP, we all have to get behind the SNP. Now it's a few short years later, and you've got some of the same people now saying, you know, we need to, we need to have... Uh, a new vehicle, um, and it's and it's been it's been widely discussed the concept of gaming the system or how can we get more pro-independence MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, um, and there've been attempts over the past couple of years. Um, so Action for Independence is one of them, and Independence for Scotland Party is another, and they tapped into some of the various divisions in the SNP. So that is firstly the thing over independence strategy. There's divisions over Brexit. There's divisions over things like transgender rights. And all of these things have been kind of molded together. And all these things have been attempted, but they were they were kind of a drop in the puddle because no one really took them seriously. And then Salmond is basically the, the key to making this a realistic pro- prospect because he's come and he said, look, I'm going to lead the party. I have a high profile. People know who I am. Um, I led the SNP government in the 2014 referendum. And all the, all the small projects have basically folded into it. They've all kind of rallied behind it. So now, so now he has a vehicle, and it's kind of interesting to look at the the political content of that vehicle because, firstly, there's a section of the left that is kind of rallied behind this, um, and there's also a section of, you know, a very socially conservative mm. element that's rallied behind it, and there's also, um, you know, a, a section of SNP politicians, local councillors, and stuff that are rallied behind it. But it's it's a real 
<laughs> it's a really bizarre mix of people, all who have their own um, different motivations for what, what what they're getting behind this project for. And Zaman is kind of linchpin that, that glues it all together. But but the crux of it is this argument that you know the SNP hasn't been able to force Boris Johnson into allowing a referendum to happen. But if there was more MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, somehow that would change. And I I, th- I think I think it's flawed. I think it's almost kind of the opposite of what I think is um, the most important thing for the independence movement, which is actually not to put more emphasis on the election and more emphasis on the Scottish Parliament, it's actually to put less emphasis and try and focus on building up the movement in the streets, because what we had in 2014 was that we had a really, really engaged, politicised and mobilised movement, like a section of the population that was willing to go in the streets and demand it. And I think like one of the great illustrations of that was 2012 and 2013, there was big marching rallies for independence, in Edinburgh, and they spent months and months building them, and they got like 10,000 people at it. But in the week, like running up to the independence referendum, you'd have something that was like announced spontaneously that would get twice or more that yeah. number of people like that, because there was a real, you know, urgency. And I think that's the kind of thing we have to be um, aiming towards getting back. Um, whereas the uh, Alba Party, or the Alapa Party, depending on um, how fluent and Gaelic you are, um, is trying to shift the the goalposts to you know, give us a supermajority in the Scottish Parliament. We've had two-thirds of MSPs and Boris couldn't possibly ignore us. Um, and I think it's really interesting, actually, today that they were recording this, the Scottish Trade Union Congress agreed a position um, as part of the trade union movement on independence, where they basically said that a referendum should happen, and they actually said it should happen with or without Westminster's consent. But they said they were against this idea of a supermajority because they saw it as actually being against the sovereignty of the people to, to game the electoral system and to have a parliament that wasn't um, actually fully representative of all the different views. So it's actually kind of interesting because both from the like the SNP leadership was horrified at the idea that um, they're going to lose their hegemonic control of the movement and they're going to lose it to you know someone they've been openly at war with who they see as teaming up with all these you know, crackpots, and then the left has also got this big problem of, well, actually, you've taken the emphasis away from the stuff we want to do in the streets, you've taken the emphasis away from, um, you know, engaging the trade union movement, and so it's a real, it's, it's been a really complicated uh, and a really complex political situation that's developed over the course of literally only a month. What do you think of Alba's chances, then? Um, so it's really hard to say. At the moment, based on the opinion polls, they're going to get a very small foothold in the Scottish Parliament, basically. And Salmond is almost certainly going to get in. Um, he's running in the northeast of Scotland, so that covers Dundee and Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire and Angus. Um, and that's kind of his, you know, his, his political backyard, because he was an MP in Gordon for so long, uh, and in Banffshire. His constituency is there, and he is likely to get back in. It's just a question of how many of his, you know, party colleagues are actually going to wind up in there with him. Um, they've certainly failed in their bid to try and get, you know, what they were talking about, 30, 40 MSPs, I think, because um, they were talking about this prospect of having a two-thirds majority in the Scottish Parliament. That is, that is absolutely not going to happen, um, which really qu- raises the question of what's even the point of having them in that case, especially because their key policy is that in the first week of the Scottish Parliament uh, convening, they will put forward a motion saying that they should open negotiations with Westminster to negotiate independence. You know, a referendum be damned. Um, a referendum could take place, they say, but the negotiations should start immediately. Um, but they're, they're, they're unlikely to have any kind of mandate for that. So what really looks to be realistic is Salmond and maybe a handful of others will basically be a thorn in the side of the SNP for the next five years. Um, they, they launched their manifesto 
um, today as well. And it has lashed together all kinds of uh, policies. So they're trying to avoid being seen as a single issue um, independence party, mm. uh, even though that is the main, that is the, that's the purpose of it as a vehicle. That's the reason why people get behind it is because they're like, independence is the most important thing. But they've kind of lashed together some random policies. So they've kind of said, you know, uh, we'll put a, a break on transgender rights because they sense that there's a constituency that want that. Um, they're going to say, like, we'll have uh, free sports for kids because, you know, that's a popular pledge yeah. and all kinds of things. But they've just kind of lashed it together. And it's also funny because it's not a democratic project either. I think there's a really good comparison to how the Brexit Party was set up as a split from UKIP as a, a private company headed by Farage where he kind of handpicked the yeah. candidates and the policies and everything. Um, there's people on the left who are really critical of the lack of democracy in the SNP, who then moved over to the ALBA party, which decided its policies by hosting a conference of the candidates, the candidates who were handpicked by Sand. So you've now got people on the left who are critics of the SNP for not being democratic enough, who are running as candidates for a party that has literally no democratic structures whatsoever. So yeah, I, th- I think I think we're gonna. It'll be really interesting to see what happens immediately after the election because. You know, when they've made such a big deal of this supermajority thing, it's like you can't, there's no expectation management there. You've set the goalposts so high. Yeah. And when you fail to reach that, there will be probably some kind of existential crisis. And I have no idea how that will resolve itself. You, you put on your Twitter the other day, you know, there does seem to be some very unsavory people attracted to it. Um, and, you know, attacks on transgender rights. There, there, you know, there are parallels with Blythe Cymru and the, and the Welsh independence movement. For some reason, it's that in particular seems to be a rallying point for some, you know, fairly, I would say, nasty elements. So, you know, hopefully they don't get too much of a foothold. It is also interesting the comparison that, uh, you know, in the Scottish Parliament, it could well be that you've got the, you know, an Alba sort of rump in there, as you said, being a, a pain in the arse essentially for for Sturgeon and the SNP. It's probably looking likely that in, you know, in Wales, that that rump of badly behaved. Uh, wreckers almost have always have always been like from the Brexit Party and UKIP, and you know they've now transitioned over some of them to abolish. So you know whilst you are having whether whether you think they're cranks or whatever, there is a drag that is like more yeah. pro-independence. Whereas it's looking like the the naughty section in the Senate will probably be made up of people who actively want to abolish it. So it's interesting to just compare the trajectories. Because you know I'm following a lot of people who who you know on Twitter and then they they broke off and, and joined Alba and stuff and seems to be a lot of that personal animosity against um, Nicola Sturgeon. But I mean she is a remarkable politician. Like do you think any of this will affect her standing? Because she seems to just take it all in her step. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's really impressive actually the fact that uh, both Sturgeon and the SNP are in such a strong position given everything that's happened in the last uh, you know few years but also the last few months in particular it's incredible really um, yeah and, and, it, and it's really funny actually because the covid crisis is interesting because she's got such high approval ratings for how the covid crisis has been managed compared to such poor um you know approval ratings for boris johnson there hasn't actually been that much of a big difference between the way that they've managed it it's yeah. been a, a rhetorical difference um and i mean it, it's bizarre because you've got things like um the care home scandal where a lot of people were um sent back from hospitals to care homes and then died of COVID and spread COVID. And it was like the, the majority of uh, COVID deaths in the early, in the first wave were in care homes. And it's kind of bounced off her, basically, because she is just like such an incredibly popular figure. And she's also like the most recognised figure. Yeah. I mean, she's been uh, leader of the SNP since 2014 then. 
The other parties tend to like change leaders all the time, with the exception of Liberal Democrats, who have managed to somehow keep going with this one guy and nobody likes for so so long. It's just incredible. But 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 that you know, like she she's got this recognition and trust, and it's so. I mean, I sometimes find it a little bit hard to understand. You know, but but then again, you, you sometimes you compare her to some of the people, like in Westminster, for example. Yeah. You know, you compare her to Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, and you kind of you understand maybe the appeal for people who um, whose maybe exposure to politics is limited to looking at all these, you know, leading figures. Um, just seems to be such an effective communicator. I mean, like, and again, like you know, p- people mistake. You know, if, if I say admire Nicola Sturgeon as a communicator, you know, as a politician, it's it's, it's nothing to do with her policies. You know, not under any illusions about the SNP, but it's just like she she is an extremely effective political communicator. Like it's just as you said to the point where you look at her compared to someone like I don't know, Boris or Hancock or whatever, and you think, oh bloody hell! Like you can see why she she does have these these approval ratings. But the, the other interesting thing is is what you said is all is all like the rhetorical work that's been done around COVID. It's been really interesting. You know, to make the comparisons, because as you said, I don't, you know, there hasn't been much of a divergence between Wales, Scotland, or England at all. And that's why I thought, you know, they essentially all made the same mistakes, as you say, uh, discharging people into care homes, make, make really awful, awful decisions. But there's almost been this, how do you describe it? Probably something like COVID nationalism, you know, like Drakeford and Welsh Labour, despite being like ardently unionist, have benefited from this like Team Wales mentality in wales where it's like okay we're between drakeford and between drakeford and boris you know the people will just uncritically back mark drakeford's policies regardless of like whether they're actually divergent from westminster or, or regardless of whether they're actually uh sensible in any way because it was like you know they were able to say well you know this is wales and we do things differently and stand up for devolution and it's, it's interesting that you know it seems to be that's what almost what sturgeon's done as well but obviously you've got like well more experience and it's a nationalist party doing it it's really funny because actually if you look at most countries in the world, there was that whole kind of COVID bounce in opinion polls. You know, so many governments who are really lagging behind in terms of public opinion had that feeling of we have to rally behind, they're trying to do everything they can. And, you know, we're sometimes, it's, it's really amazing how much sometimes we're locked in a really kind of parochial bubble in that. Um, I don't think like the vast majority of people in, in the UK kind of realise how badly the UK has handled the pandemic because... You're so um, immersed in the UK political discourse and the UK media and everything like that that you're not really constantly comparing yourself to you no. know, other countries. You know, so like the things that like New Zealand and uh, Australia had such a great record of, of dealing with the pandemic, it doesn't really resonate with people. And even if they're kind of vaguely aware of it, they don't really think about it that deep. So it, it's interesting. I think it's not even it's not a uniquely Scottish or Welsh phenomenon that's actually happened everywhere. Is that people have been you know, had their expectations managed so well. It's been, it was absolutely surreal, honestly, to see people who are, you know, died in the wool, you know, Welsh nationalists, pro, you know, pro-independence, you know, traditionally anti-Welsh Labour, just immediately, uncritically rally around Mark Drakeford um, because he became like this symbol of like Wales and he embodied devolution and like and everything like that. And, and regardless of the fact, you know, Wales, as you said, Wales, like the rest of the UK, has just performed absolutely terribly, made some mm-hmm. awful decisions. It doesn't matter because it's like, well, compared to England, blah blah blah. It's just been, it's been, been very strange. Moving on to moving on to Labour, I was told, I don't know if it was true, but that Richard Leonard, bless him, you know, re- suffered a real crisis of confidence going up against Nicola Sturgeon repeatedly because he just, he, he often he did look like he was out of his depth, even if he was like a nice man, blah blah blah. 
you know, obviously Leonard's now been replaced by Anna Sawa. How would you reflect on the the Leonard uh, period and and how he did, but also, you know, what what Sawa had done? So the thing about Richard Leonard is that I think there was a section of the left and even the even the pro independence left in Scotland that you know were really excited about what was happening with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, and they kind of saw um, in Richard Leonard. The, the basically the Scottish expression of the same phenomenon. So there was a lot of you know high expectations, a lot of pressure from the the left in terms of what he was meant to be and what he was meant to achieve, and he just wasn't able to live up to that. And yeah. you know he firstly <clears throat> the thing about the Corbyn phenomenon in UK Labour was the fact that they had that membership surge. There was that genuine movement where um, after he announced his candidacy, he was able to rally all this kind of support. And there was people who were genuinely like politicised and introduced like that. And whatever you know, the shortcomings politically of the Corbyn project, you can almost compare that to kind of what was going on in the run up to 2014, when a lot of people were being brought into politics, like myself, um, through the referendum campaign. Um, the problem with Richard Leonard was that there was nothing comparable to that. Richard mm. Leonard was basically backed by he he was he was firstly not quite as uh, much of an outsider for example, as Jeremy Corbyn. So he was the GMB's political officer. He was yeah. actually part of the referendum campaign, arguing uh, on behalf of one of the more conservative trade unions for uh, for the union. And very much he positioned himself as like the kind of traditional Labour trade unionist lefty, yeah. not like a kind of a new radical yeah. left phenomenon yeah, exactly. kind of thing. So, so yeah, so so he kind of he 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 tried to lead the party in the way that uh, he wanted, which was very much trying to be loyal to uh, the trade union movement, trying to be loyal to um, what he saw as you know a, 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 the labour alternative to unionism, where it wasn't about union at all costs. He was keen to explore things like you know constitutional tinkering, uh, you know, like federalism was always been. It's almost exclusively raised in a defensive way when people talk oh. about independence. But you know, I, I don't I don't doubt the fact that some people genuinely believe in that, and some people genuinely believe that you know, uh, reorganising the UK on a federal basis would be as transformative as as it's all cracked up to be. But the big problem with, with with Leonard is that like that's not what where the Scottish Labour Party, like the Parliamentary Party and stuff, wants to be. Like they do actually. We, we were talking about this earlier, and um, before we came on the the podcast about how unionist nationalism has been in such strong decline um, in Scotland, where, you know, a lot of people who want Scotland to remain part of the UK are really uncomfortable with, you know, expressions of Scottish nationalism, even though they were commonplace, like things like the Scottish Labour Party, you know, saying in the 80s that Thatcher had no legitimacy to to govern Scotland because she didn't have any MPs there, no support there. Um, You just couldn't possibly imagine uh, a Scottish Labour MP saying something like that about Boris Johnson today, like it's just it's just not done. The political culture has changed so much, and the political culture in the Scottish Labour Party, unfortunately, the dominant culture is one of like hardline unionism, and Richard yeah. Leonard couldn't live up to that. And so, you know, he came under basically a lot of pressure from some of his own MSPs, the Scottish press, the Scottish Conservative Party, which suddenly became second place in Scotland, um, and you know. Fair play then eventually he just couldn't put up with it anymore and threw the towel in. And now we've got Anna Sarwar um, as the Scottish Labour leader. And I think it's really funny when people refer to him as being part of the millionaire tendency in the Labour Party. 
his, so his like his so his background, um, his personal background is so his family um, owns a, you know what 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 you would call a successful business, um, and it's a successful business because of the fact you know it doesn't pay its staff yeah. a living wage, it doesn't recognise uh, trade unions. His stake in that was worth something like five million pound. Um, and actually, in 2017, when he previously ran for the leadership of the party, uh, he came under a lot of pressure about this, and he said, you know, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll take this £5 million worth shares, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in a trust for my children to access when they're when they're older. You know, the children he's already paying to put through private school. So he was kind of doing this thing of, like, you know, I'll give up my wealth by just tucking it away for my kids to have later. It's absurd. And, and the thing is, like, he's... Presented, you know, I saw Labour politicians presenting him not only as leader of the Labour Party, but that he was somehow the leader of the Labour movement, which is an incredible, uh, yeah. you know, title to claim for yourself. And uh, yeah, I think the important thing about Anasawa is he's, he's the continuity better together candidate. You know, he was the coordinator for Scottish Labour's campaign in the 2014 referendum, and he's made unionism a very central part of his election pitch to the point where actually one of Labour's candidates, Holly Cameron, um, who's actually old comrade of mine from when we were both in the Scottish Socialist Party, uh, neither of us are now, obviously. Um, she was uh, selected as a Labour candidate for Glasgow Kelvin, and she was removed based on yeah. very uncontroversial comments, actually, that she made to the National. You know, she she basically told the newspaper that everyone in Labour respects the right to self-determination. We just have a disagreement over when you know a referendum should be, and you know that's actually you know not. I mean, I, I don't believe that that is the Labour position because I think the Labour position is actually they'd rather not have a referendum ever. But that is on paper what the Labour Party says. They say, we respect self-determination. We just think, you know, we've yeah. had a referendum recently and there's the COVID crisis, so let's not bring this up soon. But simply for, for entertaining the possibility that Labour is not intrinsically opposed to a referendum, you know, she was booted out. And uh, even though there was a backlash and all these people in the Labour Party were saying, you know, we won't stand for this. Unfortunately, they are standing for it. And then, you know, I feel really bad for, I know a lot of um, left-wingers who are still in the Labour Party. I know left-wingers who are in, who are standing as Labour candidates, and some of whom I think would be really good MSPs. And I feel, I just kind of feel sorry that the party is moving back to this kind of hardline unionism, which I think is just a, has, has a totally crushing influence on the possibility of having radical politics and achieving something radical. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, you know, the STUC is taking a position on um, the independence uh, movement that is far more radical than the mainstream Scottish Labour Party. And the Labour Party still thinks it is the political expression of the trade union movement. So how can they even, how can they reconcile that disconnect? I really don't know. Uh, Rory Scothorne and Ewan Gibbs (laughs) coined that term, I think, kamikaze unionism, which I think is incredibly useful. Because it, cause it, it is, it encapsulates all the, the almost the death drive of, it, it would seem, of Scottish Labour. I mean, it always seemed like Leonard, he'd say something which was progressive, and then it almost felt like someone was feeding him a line. It's like, all right, now say something extremely unionistic and weird. I mean, again, I do wonder about the, intern, I mean, the internal battles going on within the Scottish Labour Party and people, as you, as you said, left-wingers remaining in even now after it's like pivoted to this ultra-unionist stance. I mean, any idea about the levels of dissent or what they're hoping to achieve by sort of staying in, whether any of them are, you know, pro-independence or... Yeah, I mean, uh, so I, I have some friends in the, in the Labour Party and I still speak to you know, some people in the Labour Party. I, I can't claim to have a, you know, a really clear insight into where they are and what they're feeling. 
I think the biggest thing is, you know, what, where else, you know, would they go? Is I think the big question in everyone's mind because, you know, the SNP is pro-independence. The SNP is not a radical party by yeah. any means. And if you look at, you know, the kind of economic policies yeah. that the Labour Party is espousing, even under Sarwar, you know, in many ways they're radical. So, so the SNP um, in this election period, to take an example, is like made a lot of quite progressive policy pledges. So you've got, um, I think one thing that I think is really underappreciated is uh, abolishing dentistry charges on the NHS, which is like really staking claim to a big part of the Labour Party's heritage as the party of the NHS and everything like that. Um, and they, and they, they have been doing um, kind of things aimed at, you know, they're, they're, they're wealthier policies um, aimed at kind of restoring some of the key parts of the welfare state. But at the same time, like the, the key kind of core economic logic of the SNP is quite conservative. Mm. And the big thing that a lot of people that has put, you know, even some 2014 yes voters off and people on the left uncomfortable is um, the Sustainable Growth Commission, which was basically a project a few years ago now where the SNP said we'll put together a, a, a new modern economic prospectus for independence and we'll get this guy, uh, Andrew Wilson, um, who's a, you know, a corporate lobbyist to, to, to draft the thing. And it'll all be focused on deficit reduction and uh, national debt reduction um, and Austerity. really, really strict. Yeah, basically aesthetic. You know, it's the same logic that, um, you know, George Osborne was peddling in, in yeah. Westminster when we were trying to you know, break up the UK. So, and, and, you know, Sturgeon this week or last week, I think, said, you know, that, you know, that, that report is out of date, but I still agree with the general, you know, thrust of it. It's just that we need to refresh the numbers. So given that's the case, I feel like a lot of people um, in the Labour Party are feeling a little bit torn, you know, between, yeah. you know, those who are, you know, e- either open-minded on independence or in favour of independence, kind of caught in this position of like, well, the SNP's perspective is just terrible. The Labour's constitutional politics are terrible. Um, but I, like this is just two bad options. And then of course you know there's things like the Scottish Green Party is you know increasingly imagining as like the standard holder for the yeah. independence left because nobody else has a, has that kind of foothold in Parliament. And yeah. the, the Greens obviously traditionally have this kind of epithet of like well they're all middle class sandal wearers and stuff. And you know the Scottish Greens actually are, are increasingly breaking out of that. They're one of the more left wing and radical left wing Green parties in Europe. But a lot of people still. <clears throat> don't really see them like that person yeah. almost. And it's still things like the the link with the trade union movement um, is like the big appeal of the Labour Party or the 100,000 members is the big appeal of the SNP and people still have a little bit of a question over, you know, a little bit of a, a, a problem finding, you know, the personal justification for being a Green, even though, you know, I, I think the, I have a lot of friends in the Greens who have... Do the Greens not stand to lose probably the most from Alba? Have they got it mainly on list seats or...? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, the Greens only have list seats. They do stand to lose from Alba in a certain respect. They're not likely to lose voters to, to Alba because they're just yeah, too different. Um, but there is obviously a quirk of the electoral system where, you know, when there's parties in competition for like, the yeah, last yeah. available seat, you know, it's quite possible that Alba can pit um, Greens to a seat, which, you know, I think would be a disaster just because, yeah. the you know, the Greens are a... I don't want to say legitimate political force, but they have um, purpose and a base. It's not like just a fleeting pop-up phenomenon. And they are pro-independence, and they're a really important part of like the radical independence campaign um, in the 2014 uh, campaign. So 
I think it would be uh, I would be sad to see some of the incredible green candidates like Maggie Chapman, who's running in North East Scotland, if she was uh, you know refused a seat because of Alex Salmond, I think that would be very poor for the independence movement. For all the jealous gazing that the, the, the Welsh national movement and Plaid Cymru do towards the SNP, yourself and many other people have sort of ably criticised their economic policies and you know they are essentially a centrist party pursuing orthodox, as you say, like in some cases almost pro-austerity policies. Is the SNP, like a, it seems to be a big, obviously it's a hegemonic party, so presumably it has a big, it appeals to different classes and and sections of society. What's the you know what's the status of the left in the SNP? Who is the SNP's core constituency? So traditionally, you know, <clears throat> the the SNP's base was more in you know the northeast and in, in kind of rural Scotland and in kind of middle class Scotland. And you know, in in the seventies and eighties, they were castigated as tartan Tories and all this yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. But they've really tried to shed that image. And you know, Salmond was a major architect of the SNP becoming. A social democratic party, basically, and there was a big kind of strategic turn towards winning over the Labour heartland. Something that kind of finally happened with the referendum campaign, like in a very irreversible way. Um, and that is the point at which you know the SNP became the dominant party in work-class parts of Dundee and Glasgow, and really became a national party. And now, and now yeah, you, they're holding together a very awkward coalition. I would say, because they have done this in a big tent thing of they do have, you know, the urban working class voters, they do have the rural middle class voters. Um, some of this has changed a little bit following Brexit because uh, Sturgeon positioned herself as like so explicitly anti-Brexit that um, the small, you know, small pockets of, of Scotland that did vote for Brexit have kind of turned off. So some of the like fishing communities in the North East yeah. actually, you know, might have been traditionally um, SNP heartlands have maybe turned off a little bit, um, but yeah, it's, it's a very broad constituency, and obviously it's tied together with this um, nationalist imagery of the SNP stands up for Scotland. It doesn't stand up for you know Scottish workers or Scottish businesses. It tries to make out that all these things um, aren't necessarily in contest with each other, and she can be the voice of Scotland. And you know, there's, it clearly resonates with a lot of people. For all the problems that we have with that, it has become you know one of the mainstays of Scottish politics now, that people want this idea of standing up for Scotland. And of course, it's interesting, because of all the limits of devolution, you know, we have a very weird political discourse, where some of the, you know, the big economic and political challenges that normal independent countries have had to tackle and deal with over the past few decades, um, haven't necessarily unfolded in the same way here. So for example, like, I don't, like Scotland is always portrayed as a very welcoming country to, to immigrants. I don't know how the discourse on immigration might have been different if Scotland and Scottish Parliament actually had control of immigration. Mm. You know, that's one of the reasons I think that that's what we've managed to avoid. And, that, and it's very fortunate that we've avoided that. <clears throat> but in the same way, like that has a, an, an economic impact. You know, what would the debate on economics in Scotland between Scottish parties look like if we actually had serious economic powers here? And, you know, if you base it on looking at the SNP and the Growth Commission and everything, probably not particularly good. I should say as well, for anyone who's interested in reading, um, Laurie McFarlane, the economist, has a really good piece in Open Democracy, where he talks about the SNP's economic model. I would say it's a really good introductory piece. But, yeah, I, th- I think I think there's a lot of... There's a, there's a reason, because of the devolution framework, that the SNP is able to hold together a really awkward coalition. Yeah. But it's not going to last forever. 
going back to the STUC, if we rewind to the, the independence referendum, I know some of the unions were neutral. I think Unite was maybe neutral. But, you know, as you said, GMB and a bunch of others, unions was, were central to this old Labour, pro-union, pro-British worker, sort of social imperialist like Labourism um, that was extremely pro-union. And now, so is that shifting in the union movement? Because it, it, that is relatively seismic if the union movement is coming around to... I would say it's shifting, but I think the first thing I should caveat is if we go back to the 2014 campaign and the positions that the trade unions took, it wasn't exactly like there was a big democratic debate in the trade union movement yeah. about the trade union, about how that should go. So taking Shock GMB artist. as an example, yeah, I, I know. It's, it's just so you have the situation where in, 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 over the course of the 2014 campaign, 2012 to 2014 broadly, the trade unions weren't actually keeping up the pace of the change of opinion in working class communities. You know, and there's a real tendency, and you know, you keep talking about like laborism. It's actually one of the key things I think of laborism is this view that the trade unions are the legitimate expression of what working yeah. class people think. And so, if the trade unions say this, then yeah. they're speaking for the workers. Absolutely. And that was clearly not the case in 2014 when we had the situation where if you look at the distribution of the vote and taking Dundee as an example. I still have the spreadsheet with a you know a ward by ward breakdown. Or actually, like a polling station by polling station breakdown of where the votes were. I mean, you look at all the um, the schemes. You're looking at like 80% yes, and then you're looking at uh, the leafy suburbs. You're getting 80% no, and there's such a clear yeah. class divide there. And this was just not really reflected at all in the trade union movement. The trade union movement had this kind of approach where either they were doing the loyal thing to the Labour Party and swinging behind the unionist camp, or they were doing this weird kind of neutrality thing where. Sometimes they would try and put out uh, like a discussion paper that was meant to be challenging both sides. Yeah, yeah. But it, was really, it wasn't really challenging either side because it's not like they were going to resolve that one way or the other. But, like, what's the point of saying, like, here's a list of uh, commitments. If you back this, we'll back you. But not actually coming out swinging for either. It's yeah, just exactly. bizarre. So, so, so GMB is a really good example here because GMB, huge union, politically sometimes a bit more of a conservative union, um, I think in Scotland actually has been involved in some really, really impressive organising in recent years. But when the 2014 referendum came around, they started doing all these kind of informal consultation meetings where, you know, people could come and they could discuss independence and they could hear both sides of it or whatever. And before they even finished that kind of sham process of having these meetings, they came out and said, we're back in the no side, by the way. It's not like their members were ever balloted. It's not like they ever um, based it on these consultation meetings that were still taking place. It was just the union bureaucracy coming out and saying, bam, we're, uh, we're for better together. And, you know, I know people who, who left the union over that, uh, which is like another reason why it was so stupid and self-destructive is that actually, you know, when you're talking about organising working class people and class power and everything, people don't really want that to be, the people, people want that to be democratic. <laughs> you know, it's quite an intrinsic part. And yeah, I, th- I think what's maybe happening is that the trade union movement realises they can't do that again. You know, things have firstly changed in that support for independence is higher now than it was then. Um, it's been the most consistent majority support for independence and opinion polls now that there's ever been. And they realise that there's a section of the labour movement that really wants to be part of this. You know, there's a new generation of, um, you know, union reps and union officials and stuff like that. But also that, you know, there is an, there's an expectation that they're going to have to tackle this differently. And, you know, after so many years of Tory rule, I mean, think back to 2014, Ed Miliband was Labour leader and people were peddling the idea that he was going to be Prime Minister. And this is, you know, 
like seven years later and we're still under Tory government. Um, that's seven years of Tory majority with brief interruptions. And yeah, I think I think I think there's now basically a realization people are seeing this as a as a lifeboat and we have to at least entertain the prospect. Yeah. So there's been a really welcome shift in particular the STUC and it's not been all happening overnight. It has been gradual. There's been kind of there's been more engagement, there's been more encouraging statements coming out of them. Um, and I think that's really peaked with the motion that was passed by the STUC, which was moved by the PCS union and basically said, you know, we respect Scotland has the right to self-determination, a referendum should happen, and it even includes the line, I think it's really crucial, that it should happen with or without Westminster's consent. Yeah, that's because, huge. Yeah, because cause that's, that's, the, that's the crucial thing here, is how we actually get a referendum out. And the trade union movement, you know, it's not it's not got the size and the power that it might have had, but like keep in mind the history of the STUC. The STUC played a big role in even winning devolution. And, you know, they they played a big role in changing the national discourse and making that part of you know the settled will, if you will. And there's you know there's so little institutions of civic Scotland like that left. You know, there's there's no reason why as an independence movement we should be trying to tap into that um, and trying to really bring in all these sections of Scottish society for a real sustained campaign from below because frankly I think that's the only thing that's actually going to shift the, the balance here. You know, if we just make this an argument between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson where the stakes, you know, there are no stakes for Boris. He can keep saying no and nothing bad will happen. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, we need to have something to break that deadlock and the greatest asset I think we have is the fact that we know there's the potential for a mass independence movement because we experienced like a taste of that in yep. 2014. So it's just a question of trying to, you know, trying to develop that kind of strategy. Um, and I think discussions are happening. And um, very soon after the election, actually, there'll be a, another radical independence conference where I hope um, we can start to work out some of these uh, some of these things. But the STUC is, you know, undoubtedly got to be a part of that. The trade union movements undoubtedly got to be a part of that. And you know, it doesn't always have to be from the the the, the top down. You know, there's nothing stopping trade unionists trying to organise on that basis now. And actually I've got friends who are in Yes RMT, which is basically set up as a, a network of pro-independence RMT members. The RMT union is pro-independence, but you know, it's always good to um, to, to be organised to try and maximise the involvement there. So yeah, I think, I think, I think this encouraging moves, and I don't know if it'll be the game changer yet, I don't know if I don't want to over-egg it, but it's definitely encouraging and I think it's indicative of broader shifts. And these things, it's like turning a QE2. It's not something that happens overnight, is it? After, you know, nuanced sociological analysis of, uh, of Scotland, I'm just going to put you on the spot and ask you what you think is actually likely to happen in the forthcoming elections. Right, OK. <laughs> well, I'm terrible at predictions, actually. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I, 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 I constantly flood this because I, I didn't predict Brexit and I didn't predict Trump, so I want to roll for bad predictions. Well, I, I, I think there's going to be an SNP majority. Yeah. Uh, if there isn't now, they can come back and blame you for that for saying that out loud. Probably. I'll just go back and, and edit it out, mate. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's going to be an SNP majority. I think the thing is that that to me is not going to be the game changer. The SNP have had a majority mm. in the past. You know, the SNP had uh, have, have had a pro-independence. There's been a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament ever since the referendum, and that does not necessarily give them the freedom to do as they please. I think this is exacerbated by the fact that, you know, Scottish government's been saying, 
COVID crisis, can't have a referendum yet. You know, it's true that in a lockdown, we can't really have the kind of independence referendum campaign we want to have. Um, but if you're talking about kicking the ball down the road two or three years, I think that's taking the, the foot off the pedal at the worst possible time. Because yeah. this is the moment at which we have a, a remarkably high level of public support. We have this big democratic exercise that is lending legitimacy to the idea that a referendum is what the people of Scotland want. Um, and it's at a time where, you know, we're, we're heading into the post-COVID economic turmoil. Um, and we need to be equipped um, to, to deal with that. So I think my, 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 my fear, but also my prediction is the election will happen, but then the emphasis will be shifted back away from independence for a while, and that will be a mistake. And I think that's the, the, what the independence movement then has to reckon with is actually how do we make sure as our own kind of organised independent force that we can keep the pressure on and keep the, the emphasis. You've provided already a blueprint for for change in that it has to, just like the 2014 referendum, it has to be popular, it has to be in the streets, it has to be backed by the, the trade union movement. You know, what is the SNP's long-term strategy? They're obviously not going to come out and do a unilateral declaration of independence. As you said, Boris has basically solved the crisis of the of the Tory party and looks likely to, you know, there's going to be Tory hegemony for the foreseeable. And as you said, he can just keep saying no. Like, he's going to keep saying no forever. Um, and as you said, nothing will happen. So what options are there, like, you know, really, other than some sort of velvet revolution with, like, the you know, mass street protests? What's the SNP's actual strategy for achieving independence? So the it's hard to tell, to be honest. And there seems to be... It's either there's a, a cognitive dissonance or there is um, a, a disconnect between what they're saying in public and what they feel privately. Mm. Because the, the SNP position has always been, you know, the critical thing is public opinion uh, and we can't change public opinion um, overnight. You know, we've got to do the slow and steady thing to build up support and eventually support will be so big that the UK government can't possibly deny it. Uh, of course, this all is based on the expectation that the UK government adheres to certain you know, democratic yes. standards and norms. And, you know, if, if, if the thing is as well, this government of all governments, I mean, the UK government has always been, you know, the, the, the whole function of the UK state is so fundamentally undemocratic. And you can look just across the Irish Sea to see what kind of lengths they'll go to, yeah. um, to, to, to defend the state. But the SNP strategy is very much, well, we'll when we're hit like 60% or 65% or whatever, there'll just be this unstoppable moral force. And then in terms of actually achieving that increase in public opinion, uh, if you look at the referendum campaign, where did the mass increase in support come from? It came from working class communities, you know, it came from people who uh, basically wanted change for the better. And what the SNP's message is now is actually increasingly one of continuity so around Brexit it was we will keep Scotland in the, in the European Union rather than taking it out so that was very reassuring to you know those who actually did have a stake in the current economic system so had, had a and, and you know like it obviously it appeals to EU migrants as well and I think that's a separate thing but economically business people who are worried about trading barriers and all this kind of stuff and if you look at so Andrew Wilson as a corporate lobbyist drafting the Sustainable Growth Commission report. There's also people like Benny Higgins, who was the former CEO of Tesco Bank, is chairing like the Economic Recovery Group. You know, we've got no kind of trade union uh, engagement at the top levels of the SNP. There's just been all these constant overtures to big business 
capital trying to um, assure middle Scotland that independence will be not too much of a disruption, you know, it would yeah. be, a, it be a, a big sea change and things like, like you can see that in like the currency debate, you've got the whole thing over, um, should we keep the pound or not, and the S&P position is happily like, oh, we'll, we'll keep using the pound, you know, we don't need monetary sovereignty, and it's all this kind of stuff about being the most reasonable people in the room will be the winning option, and that, like, that's not new to be fair, because like even in, even under Salmond in the 2014 referendum campaign, there was that big kind of push of you know, we're the party of uh, responsible government. That's been yeah. the SNP mantra since 2007. You can trust us. If you look at the NATO debate, suddenly when independence was a real prospect, it was going to be really awkward uh, having Scotland potentially leave NATO because Scotland is really strategically important for NATO because yeah. uh, it's positioned in the North Sea. And actually, it was, it was really funny. Something I stumbled across recently was that um, there was a, a really important NATO facility in the north of Ireland near Belfast, RAF Bishop's Court, and it was, it's so important actually that they um, have declassified files now suggesting that it was actually a, a Soviet nuclear target. But during the, during the Troubles, they dismantled it and they moved it across the sea to Scotland. Because <laughs> clearly they thought, you know, that's the a, a more secure position. But anyway, so 2013, independence is a real prospect, and so the SNP leadership do their duty of saying, all oh, right, okay, well, actually, maybe we'll stay in NATO. See, you don't have to worry about us so much. Yeah. We won't rock the boat. And, uh, yeah, the SNP today is very much a continuation of you can trust us. Yeah. Uh, and not saying that to, to, you know, people on low wages, people who are being shafted on welfare and stuff like that. They're saying that to the business owners, the landlords, um, international leaders. We won't be too far out with the the consensus and the orthodoxy. So, so that that's very much they've convinced themselves that that is the politics that will win the day. I, I'm less convinced. <laughs> well, almost hamstrung by their own, you know, respectability. They don't have enough nutters in uh, involved, unlike the Welsh national movement. It's it's a risky strategy, I think. I mean, there's assumption I've always assumed, and I I do hope with all my heart that you know Scotland becomes independent very soon. Isn't there a nightmare scenario where I don't know somehow? the cult personality around Boris Johnson and uh, whatever that the big businesses that have been essentially not bribed, but, you know, told or independent, you know, independence will work for everyone, including capital. Is there any chance of this momentum just collapsing and people and the crisis of the British state being resolved for good? Um, well, I should say, I don't think the, the crisis of the British state is going to go away anytime soon, even if, um, you know, the, the foot comes off the pedal and the Scottish independence movement slows down a little bit. Um, I think I think the UK state has got some very serious long-seated, long-term problems. Um, and I, I, like, I'm very serious about like how undemocratic it is, but also how less democratic it's becoming. So things like the policing bill yeah. that's being steered through the courts and fortunately applies to you guys in Wales um, and to England. It doesn't strictly apply mm-hmm. to Scotland, even though there's some, you know, little extensions, I think it is a really worrying indication of the direction of travel in the British state, because they are not putting in new policing powers just for fun, you know, um, as much as you might like to caricature the Tories as just pure evil, there are strategic considerations here, they have looked at protest movements the last few years, so in particular Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter, and how disruptive these can be to the, you know, the day-to-day life, and they've made a judgment They've looked at probably the COVID crisis and everything that's going to happen, everything's going to unfold in the next few years economically, 
and they've made a judgment that they will need these powers to keep things going smoothly. Um, I think that is a really good indication of how uh, the British state is going to deal with the democratic challenges that are coming in all the different parts of the UK, as well as the economic challenges. It is going to be a very authoritarian uh, approach of, like, let's suppress these challenges as they come up. Um, so, like, to be honest, my, my feeling is there's for for there's a part of it which is you know in Scotland, um, we have to, to keep things moving and we have to try and push for Scotland to become an independent country. But I think there's also a case for we need to be working together across these islands. Yeah. There needs to be coordination between national movements in Scotland and Wales in the north of Ireland, and there should be an appeal to you know the the more radical parts of the English left. To, to show some solidarity and support, because frankly, you know, you're the people that are going to be suffering as well along us, like under Tory rule. This is not something that, um, you know, we, we all we all have a stake in it. And there should be an increasing recognition that actually it's good for the left in England. If Scotland becomes independent. It will be the biggest kind of shake up and upheaval of politics in the UK, um, and that will have an impact and it will open doors and opportunities for the left. I actually think you know the northern the northern independence party is a really interesting phenomenon because um, you know for all the consideration of it as like a as a shitposting vehicle, it's really interesting to see people in England dealing with the politics of nationalism in the state in a way it's that those of us in the periphery. It's fine now. <laughs> it's yeah, fine now. Yeah. It's good. It's uh, it's no longer about blood and soil or uh, Welsh mm-hmm. language lunatics. Yeah, so so I, I really think that, and I think one of the great things that would be good to see post-COVID is that I actually love to see a march for self-determination in London that actually brings together all these people and forces in one place because, you know, we do have to actually bring this fight into, you know, the heart of the UK. When I was talking about, like, um, raising the, the stakes so that Boris, he needs to have a reason to say yes to a referendum or a reason to recognise a referendum that takes place without his, his permission. Part of that is talking about civil disobedience and direct action in Scotland, but part of it is talking about it elsewhere um, in the other parts of the UK. And like, we should be we should be able to expect that people in the rest of the UK who consider themselves Democrats should be willing to actually, you know, give some consideration to that. So, it's, and it's, it's interesting for me because I'm currently living in England. Um, I'll spend my year in England coming to an end in August. Sorry, mate. Um, <laughs> And I've been having this. I've been having these conversations with people on on the left down here and trying to challenge yeah. them to like, because because there's just such a easy position of like, well, you know, I don't care if Scotland becomes independent. That's up to you guys. Well, yeah. it's actually it's not up to us because it's, it's yeah. your government that is saying that we're not allowed to, to vote. So. And especially the long-standing argument against independence is you know it's about solidarity between you know workers of all nations. And sometimes you think, well, okay, well let, let's see some of that solidarity in action. As you said, in service of democracy. Well, it's a nice, it's a nice image and one to close on. Really fantastic. Thank you so much, Connor, honestly, for for giving us your time and, and explaining everything really, really brilliantly. Is there anything we haven't covered, or is there anyone you'd like to give a shout out to, or anyone you'd like to start a beef with? <laughs> um, well, I probably shouldn't um, start a beef with anyone because I've actually already had too many. Yeah, the Alba Party already trolling through my tweets and uh, actually reporting one of them to the police. So I'll try and avoid avoid that happening again. Um, I think the only thing I can say is uh, I I appreciate the interest in in Wales with what's going on in Scotland. And I should say that actually we're very interested in what's going on 
in Wales um, in return. And, you know, you talk about uh, a little bit of jealousy about things that are happening in Scotland. A lot of us are actually quite jealous about how increasingly well-organised uh, the Welsh independence movement seems to be. And uh, I think Undod in particular, or Undod if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is actually yeah, yeah. a really impressive organisation. So um, I would say, you know, we're, we are all in this together in different ways. Uh, we should find more ways of expressing that. Um, I'm looking forward to next month's uh, Radical Independence Conference, where we can maybe hopefully hammer out some kind of a strategy. Yeah. Um, and since that's online, you know, there's no reason why people from yeah. Wales can't come along to that. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's there's so much dispiriting in Scottish politics right now. I do try and be a ruthless optimist and focus on the things that I find encouraging. Um, and hopefully, I think we can build a you know a proper politics of solidarity in, in the independence movement, solidarity on the basis of class, you know, against uh, the misogyny and the anti-LGBT politics. I, I don't think this is a, you know, a lost cause. I think there's a lot at stake, and I, I, I fundamentally believe that we can we can do this. So. Legend, amazing. Thank you so much, mate. Um, we'll, we'll we'll chat next time. We'll chat after the elections. I look forward to that. Cheers, Dad. Take it easy, mate. Thank you very much. Have you ever been to Scotland, Dag? Once. What was it like? I remember it much as one recalls a dream. Or a nightmare. I was on a budget flight to Norway when a storm hit and forced us to ditch in Glasgow Presswick. I was stranded. And it's so hilly up there you can't get any signal on your car phone. It looked bad. It looked like I was going to have to spend the night in Glasgow. Jesus Christ. The cabin crew suggested we all go out and club it. I had no option. There was that or one of their B&Bs. I figured it'd be safer on the streets. For the first time ever, I saw the Scotch in their natural habitat, and it weren't pretty. I'd seen them huddling in stations before being loud, but this time I was surrounded. Everywhere I went, it felt like they were watching me. Fish-white flesh puckered by the highland breeze. Tight eyes peering out for fresh meat. Screechy, boo-soaked voices hollering out for a taxi to take them halfway up the road to the next all-night watering hole. A shatter of glass. A round of applause. A 16-year-old mother of three vomiting in an open sewer. Bairns looking on, chewing on potato cakes. I ain't never going back. Not never. My aunt lives in Scotland. She says it's quite nice. Well, she's wrong.